Hebrews chapter 8, page 1206. But only if you're using our Bible in the pew, it could be any number in your Bible. 1206. Hebrews chapter 8. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses warned, uh, was warned whenever he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as much superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. For if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is the word of God. Good evening. Um, it is um, it's lovely to be with you tonight as we're uh, gearing up to, to celebrate communion. Um, and just as before we, we come to, uh, to hear um, what I have to say about this passage, um, let's, let's just pray. Let's pray that God will, God will speak to all of us tonight. Lord, um, we come before you now as we... Um, as we come to explore your word. And Lord, we pray that you will, you will speak, um, Lord, through the words that I, that I use. Lord, that these will not be my thoughts, these will not be my words, but Lord, that you will use them. Lord, that by your spirit, you will speak into our hearts. You'll help us to come to a, a deeper 
understanding, a deeper knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, be with us now as we, um, as we share together in your word. Amen. Um, I wonder, have you ever been, I say I wonder, have you ever been on holiday to a foreign country? I imagine most of you have been on holiday to a foreign country at some point. And do you ever get to that point where it's night and you decide you're going to go out for something to eat? And you don't know the place very well. It's maybe the first couple of nights and you don't know where's good. So you, you wander around and you have a nosy. And because of the, the, the language barrier uh, and to try and uh, attract people in, the restaurant has the, the menu stuck outside. And on it are, are pictures of some of their, their best dishes. Uh, my experience of this is, is when we are away skiing. Uh, and we've been out in the slopes all day, and we're tired, and we're hungry, and we, you walk past, and you see this picture of this, this beautiful steak with all the trimmings, or, or a, a lovely pizza, it just looks like, you can almost, you can almost feel it sizzling on the, on the page, or on the picture, and you think, oh, that looks amazing, and you kind of start drooling a wee bit at the mouth, and your stomach's rumbling like crazy, and your whole being is anticipating what this picture promises you. But unless you go through the doors of that restaurant and sit down in front of the real thing, it's not going to be much use to you. In fact, it's actually going to make things worse because it leads you to realize just how hungry you are and just how much you need that real thing. We've reminded you often during this, this series, um, the recipients of this letter, these Jewish Christians are being sorely tempted through persecution and hardship to leave Christianity and to go back to Judaism, to give up the real thing and go back to something that was just a picture to get up from the meal sitting in front of them, this meal that will sustain them, this meal that gives life, and go back to the picture that might look similar but really offers nothing. The writer to the Hebrews has spent the, the guts of the last seven chapters reminding these struggling disciples of who Jesus is, of how he is superior and better than anything that has come before, how he is the, the fulfillment of Judaism, not some second option that they can take. And we see a, a summary of some of that at the beginning of our passage tonight. But in chapter 8, we see something else. We see a shift, a shift from looking at the, the superiority of the person of Christ to looking instead at the superiority of the work of Christ. This better covenant brought into being by the blood sacrifice of Christ. The writer wants to remind people of all the benefits of this superior covenant so that they won't go back to something that is less given to them only as a picture that points to their need for something greater. For us here tonight, all too often we forget and we become cold to the realities of this covenant, this covenant that God has enacted for us by his son's sacrifice. And it's good for us to be reminded of some of the incredible promises and privileges of being part of Christ's covenant family. 
especially as we come to share in communion together tonight. As I've mentioned, the the writer opens this chapter by summing up his previous teaching about Christ being this this greater high priest that he begins right back in chapter 4. And in verses 1 and 2, he says that, that ultimately our high priest is better for two key reasons. He sat down and he serves in the true tabernacle. The, uh, the Aaronic priesthood's work never ended. They constantly offered sacrifices, both for their own sins and for the sins of the people. Sacrifices that even if they could have covered the sins of the people, would only be able to do so momentarily as the people continued in their sin. But on the cross, as Christ offered himself as the true, perfect sacrifice, one who had walked through the the mud and the dirt of this world and come out the other side totally clean, the only one who could and did keep the old covenant. As he gave his life for us, he cried, it is finished. No more need for sacrifices. Christ's blood shed for us the sacrifice of the sinless, perfect God-man is enough to cover our sin. Not just for a moment, but forever. For all sin, past, present, future. Covers the sin of not just one nation, but of all who come to know and follow Christ, our Savior. Colossians, uh, in the, the mornings, we've been thinking about how we are enough. Christ accepts us and makes us his as we are. Because it's not about us. It's about his finished work. That's why the writer of the Hebrews can say on a number of occasions that Christ has sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the throne of God. I think we're, we're too quick in this country to forget this. Out of, out of this sort of sense of sort of false humbleness, we can be quite negative about ourselves. What would God ever want with me? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to come to him. Look at the things I'm doing. The sin that I'm constantly falling back into. Christ would never really accept me. Well, actually, that negativity that you maybe sometimes hear from some people, it's actually quite arrogant. That we think that anything we can do can impact in any way on the incredible salvation that Christ has achieved for us. So never think that you're not good enough to come to Christ. And if you're in Christ, never think that you're not good enough to remain in him. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, don't let it lead you to walk away from Christ thinking that he's going to reject you. Your salvation is sure because it's not based on you, but on his finished work. So Christ has sat down. He has offered the final sacrifice. Through him, the power of of sin and death no longer have any hold over those he calls to be his followers. So is his part in God's plan over for now? I think that's how I I used to think about it. I think that's how I used to view it. 
I think that, you know, God is on his throne. The Holy Spirit is, is active on earth and in the lives of the believers. But Jesus has sat down. He's having this well-earned rest. And he sort of gets tagged back in at the end when he comes back for the second coming. But in verse 2, we're told that Christ, our great high priest, is currently serving in the sanctuary. And what does the high priest do? He makes intercession on behalf of the people before God. He serves the people by speaking to God on their behalf. Christ showed throughout his life that he came to be a servant. And now he sits in the very throne room of God serving us. Not once a year, like the earthly high priest, but constantly and perfectly. He doesn't do it out of duty, like the ironic priest, but out of his never-ending love for us. When we pray, he takes our, our fallen, jumbled, half-hearted prayers, and he lifts them up to God. He makes them perfect. And then he, the beloved son, he petitions God our Father, on our behalf. And yet, how slow are we to pray? How quick are we to question whether God really hears us? Whether God really responds? Christ has saved us completely. And now he serves us perfectly. That is the high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. Verses three to five, they, they really are a call for these Jewish Christians to, to recognize how much better Christ the high priest is to the priesthood they're tempted to return to. That Jesus offers himself as the gift and sacrifice and that he serves as a priest of a, a higher order as we saw last time. A priest in the, the real sanctuary, not the picture of it that was established here on earth. These Christians are about to get up from their, their meal and go back to the picture of it, thinking oh, they, they both author the, the same thing. And so the writer continues to develop their argument, showing them that not only is Jesus a, a better high priest, but he's the high priest of a better covenant, established on better promises. Why could the people not just go back to the old covenant? Sure, it had worked for, for 1,500 years. What's wrong with it all of a sudden? Why do they need this, this new thing? This thing that was causing them to lose their jobs, their families that caused them to be mocked, falsely accused, imprisoned, maybe even put to death? Well, the writer makes it clear in verse 7. The problem was that the covenant was never good enough to begin with because one of the parties in that covenant was defective, us. God found fault with the people. See, I, I believe the old covenant was never designed to be kept by humankind. It was only ever a shadow, a picture pointing people to their need for a savior, someone who could keep God's requirements someone who could meet his holy standard. Like the covenant God made with Abraham, 
where he, he, he goes to make the covenant and he puts Abraham to sleep. And he walks through on his own. He takes the burden of the covenant fully onto himself. So God with the, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant is the only one who can fulfill its requirements and open up the way for us to be made right in a new covenant, sealed again, not by human effort or righteousness, but by God's grace and Christ's sacrifice. No human effort can ever make us good enough to stand before a totally holy and perfect God. A God who will one day wipe away everything that is not holy. It will take that very God to reach down and lift us out of death. And in his grace and his love, he does that. That's what these covenants are all about. At the time of the the Mosaic Covenant, the people didn't really get it. They believed that they could keep the law and achieve this righteousness. They thought they could could keep their end of the bargain. In Exodus 19 and in Exodus 24, during the giving of this law, the people say, we will do everything the Lord has said. Moses is with God for a while, uh, and what's the first thing the people do? They build a golden calf. They almost immediately break their side of the covenant. And so it continues down through history, this cycle, sin, brokenness, repentance, recommitment, sin. Pointing the people to the fact that they're not going to be the ones to fulfill this covenant. They need a savior, a human like them, but one somehow capable of fulfilling the requirements of the law on their behalf. This passage from uh, Jeremiah that's quoted in verses 8 to 12, it comes after one of these cycles. It's the, the time of King Josiah and the rediscovery of the law which leads to this national time of of repentance and a public commitment to keep the law, which very quickly again fails. And in the midst of this failure, God, through Jeremiah, 600 odd years before the coming of Christ, promises this new covenant. And he outlines four ways that this covenant will be greater than the one they're currently under. Four ways that these New Testament Christians, these New Testament Jewish Christians, and us sitting here tonight should be experiencing God because we live in this better covenant. The four things that it outlines are we should experience an inward change from God, a closer relationship with God, a greater knowledge of God, and total forgiveness from God. And I'm only going to mention these very briefly tonight because they're all um, expanded upon elsewhere in the letter. So an inward change. Um, We see this in verse 10, the first part of verse 10. One of the problems with the old covenant was that it was totally external. The law was written on stone tablets. God's spirit was with certain individuals at certain times, but not with the whole community. They struggled to keep the law because they were still totally inclined towards their sinful nature. What hope did they have? 
but we do have hope. Because God's law is written on our hearts and minds. God's spirit is at work within us. We are, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, new creations because we are in Christ. Does that mean we don't sin? No. But if we are living for Christ, his spirit is at work within us, shaping us, giving us that, that character of God, that fruit of the spirit. So how are you growing? Is what I've just described your reality? We talked a bit about this this morning. Are you more Christ-like now than you maybe were a year ago? Five years ago? 20 years ago? Maybe you feel like you're drifting away. You've been growing more distant from Christ, more sinful rather than less. Maybe you think some of the stuff you're doing doesn't even really bother you anymore. So what's the key to this inward change? How do we keep moving forward? How do we keep growing in Christ? The second half of verse 10 tells us it's relationship with God. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will give myself to them and I will take them into myself. God wants to live in, in close, personal relationship with you. We grow as Christians only when we take that relationship seriously. I once read a, a quote that said, I've, I've never met a growing Christian who was not immersed in their relationship with God through prayer and his word. I wrote that down. I didn't write down who wrote it and I could not find it again. So Google couldn't even help me. Um, so I have no idea where that came from, but I like it. I've never met a growing Christian who was not immersed in their relationship with God through prayer and his word. Are you serious about your relationship with God? Are you invested in it? He is. Look at the lengths that he went to to make a way to draw near to you. Look at all that he did to bring you to himself. Third thing in, in verse 11, it, I've called this greater knowledge of God. What I think this verse is, is getting at is that under the old covenant, teaching was, was restricted to certain groups. You had to go to the prophet or the priest or the rabbi. But now, within this new covenant, God's complete word, his complete revelation, is available to all believers, to all God's people. So they can know God for themselves. And by his spirit working within us, we can read and understand and teach others outside the covenant community so that they too can know the Lord. Do you take seriously the Great Commission? That as a disciple of Christ, as one indwelled with God's spirit in relationship with him, and with the knowledge of his living, active word, we are to go and make disciples. To share this incredible hope, to share this, this knowledge of God with others. What a privilege we have. But what a terrifying idea for some of us. 
I wonder if you can think of, of one simple, concrete way that you could maybe share Christ with a, a friend, a colleague, a family member this week. Something simple. Just one way that you could go from here and do. What could that be? Let's take seriously God's, God's call on us. God's, God's, not call to us, God's invitation to join with him in his work. Because he doesn't need us to do this. But he invites us in to share with him in this. So let's go and do it. And finally, in verse 12, this new covenant offers us total and complete forgiveness. On the cross, Christ has has dealt with our sin. He has taken it from us, all of it. And he has also given to us his perfection. When God looks at us, he now sees us as perfect because Christ is perfect. We can now stand before God's holiness and he remembers our sin no more. I wonder, do you still hold on to guilt from past sin? God doesn't. God has chosen to remember it no more. We are forgiven, forgiven through Christ. We are, we are now heirs to the kingdom with him. I wonder, do you see yourself as a sinner or a saint? Because that's what we are now. We're saints. Within this new covenant, by Christ's blood. So let's live for Christ, knowing that we will fail and we will fall, but standing in our forgiveness, thankful that one day we will be made complete when the new covenant is fully realized at Christ's return. So we have a great high priest whose sacrifice has has covered his people's sin, past, present, and future. We have a great high priest who serves us constantly by interceding for us at his Father's throne. We have Jesus, the high priest of this new covenant, one that gives us um, God's very spirit dwelling within us, a new covenant that promises us an amazingly close relationship with our God, a covenant that says that we can know God deeply no matter who we are, and a covenant that says our sins are totally forgiven and totally forgotten. Why would these Jewish Christians ever give this up and go back to something less? Why would they get up from their meal that brings them life, that they didn't have to prepare, that they don't have to pay for, and go back to just having the picture? A picture that will eventually lead to them to starve and die. And why would we ever grow cold or unfeeling towards all that Christ has done for us. So we come to celebrate communion, to remember that the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Let's take to heart once again the great benefits that Christ has given to us 
by bringing us into this new covenant by his blood. Let's pray.